It's really thrilling to see these students work with these materials and bring their particular investments, values, and concerns to them. Hello and welcome to The Common Room, a series of conversations between members of the Yale English Department. I'm Steph Newell. Today we are talking to Professor Alana Hickey. Alana's research focuses on the intersections between early American literatures, poetry and poetics, Native American and Indigenous studies, and settler colonial studies. She's put the finishing touches to a book that uncovers the central role of poetry in Native American expressive cultures before the 1960s. At Yale, she teaches a range of courses on Native American and Indigenous cultures and writing, as well as a course on the Poetics of Place Literature in of Connecticut. She's recently completed a project on the occupation of Alcatraz and the literary publications surrounding the protest movement then and now. Alana, welcome to The Common Room. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit about your background? So I grew up in the Chicago area with a very big, a very supportive extended family around me, and they made it possible for me to attend the University of Illinois for my undergraduate studies. Part of what I now understand to be a formational moment in my intellectual development began before I came to campus for my first semester of classes, in fact. I had enrolled in a linguistic anthropology course without fully registering that it was cross-listed with the school's renowned program in American Indian Studies. And my professor sent a note ahead of the term asking us to join her in a boycott of the university bookstore, which was then still selling merchandise featuring the racist Chief Illini logo. This was really an eye-opening moment for me, watching and eventually engaging with student protests around the misuse and fundamental misunderstanding of indigeneity in this country. In my studies, I was largely interested in the institutional history of poetry in America. I was curious about why poetry seemed to be the material of the university almost exclusively. So in, in my family, we read novels, memoirs, short stories, but poetry seemed to carry with it an assumption of elite training. Engagement with poetry tended to mark clear admission into an educated class. But in graduate studies, the confluence of student activism and my private studies came together in more obvious ways. I was preparing for my qualifying exams and reading widely in 19th century popular poetry and was beginning to notice, thanks to work by scholars like Robert Dale Parker and Robert Warrior, that these white male poets were drawing on ethnographic sources in order to write from a poorly configured indigenous perspective. Working through those sources led me to the surprising realization that a large number of individuals from a diverse set of indigenous communities were publishing as poets by the turn of the 20th century. And the work of my dissertation began to address the various institutional contexts in which highly legible Euro-American poetic forms, forms like the ballad, the elegy, or the hymnal, were being put to new use by indigenous poets in ways that prioritized legibility for their communities. As I was embarking on this work, Native students at Northwestern University, where I received my PhD, led protests to build awareness around the university's founder, John Evans, and his role in the devastating Sand Creek Massacre of 1864. Those protests directly resulted in a number of substantial investments in Native American and Indigenous studies on campus, and so it happened that in both my research and my firsthand experiences, I've watched what can happen when predominantly white institutions are willing to surrender some of their authority and acknowledgement that crucial knowledge production happens outside of their walls. And it makes disciplinary engagement so much richer. 
Talking of protests, mm. you've recently completed a project in the occupation of Alcatraz. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to be interested in that topic? So following the completion of my PhD, I held a fellowship at Stanford University. And I knew something of the historic 1969 to 71 occupation of Alcatraz before coming to the Bay Area, namely that the occupation was part of the broader Red Power movement of the 60s and 70s, and that it went on for 19 months following the closure of the federal prison on the island. The protesters pointed to an 1851 treaty, which declared that out-of-use federal lands would be returned to the communities who once occupied them. And so really, these activists, who again were largely students, made a legal argument for the return of the island and proposed putting in place of the prison a number of necessary institutions and resources, including a spiritual center, an ecology center, a training school, and a center for Native American studies. So before I moved there, I knew that some poetry had been written and published in the school that the activists assembled during their occupation. And I went into the archives to try to learn a bit more about the program of studies and the place of poetry within long-term proposals for schooling on the island. But at the same time, I was working with the Intertribal Friendship House of Oakland, or IFH. This is one of the longest standing indigenous community centers in the country and a crucial hub for activists on the mainland during the occupation. The executive director of IFH, Carol Wapipaw, was interested in some of the materials that I had located in the local archives, which of course are not held by community centers like IFH, but instead belong to, in this case, the San Francisco History Center and the National Park Service. So she and I worked together on a public art exhibition around the occupation of Alcatraz titled Indian Land Forever, and we reproduced some of the works I'd located in the archive to put into direct conversation with community artworks showcasing current and ongoing struggles for territorial sovereignty today. So many of the conclusions that I was able to draw in my research would not have been available or even legible to me without that kind of community engagement, for which I'm really grateful. Well, the courses you teach at Yale take students into the archives as well as out into Connecticut. People are researching poetry and poetics dating right back to the 18th century. Can you tell us about these initiatives? So in one seminar, um, I took my first year students on a field trip to the Mashantucket Pequot Museum, our neighbours in New Haven. And we also were able to go to the Yale farm to learn about the ecological history of the region. But the collections at the Beinecke are also an incredible resource for this kind of work. Part of what my students uncover in their research there is that at times, the purportedly humanitarian aims of the literary can hide serious abuses of power. There's this incredibly damning poem by E. Pauline Johnson, a Mohawk poet and performer, published in 1894. It reads, How have you paid us for our game? How paid us for our land? by a book to save our souls from the sins you brought in your other hand. Johnson notes that the Bible, and by extension, the book more broadly considered, has been used as a vessel for the production of knowledge and the consolidation of power. The books in the Beinecke, at least some of them, were written to justify illegal theft, to attempt cultural assimilation and extermination, and systematically disparage indigenous peoples. But these records also reveal indigenous peoples communicating to one another in ways that are entirely uninterested in a colonial ordering. 
Yale students like Jay Fife and Nolan Arkansas are working through Muscogee and Cherokee language materials in the Beinecke to understand how communities in the 19th century were communicating with one another in materials like the Cherokee language newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix, and in Muscogee language hymnals. It's really thrilling to see these students work with these materials and bring their particular investments, values, and concerns to them. Do you have a favourite piece of writing, music or art? Can you tell us what it is? Why is it your favourite? Lately, all I want to listen to is disco music. I'm not sure there's a better antidote to a sour mood. Diana Ross, Donna Summer, Chic, Abba. These are all favourites of mine and on a continual playlist for me. But I suppose if we have to play one song, we can make it Donna Summer's On The Radio. Thanks, Elena. And thanks for listening to The Common Room. Our producer is Robert Scaramucci, class of 19, and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard On the Radio by Donna Summer. <laughs>